Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Since we began broadcasting Louisiana Eats in 2010, we've noticed a recurring theme when speaking with chefs, bartenders, and restaurateurs about a certain aspect of the hospitality and service industry culture. From the front of the house to the back, across Louisiana and the entire United States, there is a substance abuse problem in bars and restaurants. On this week's show, we speak with Will Arendelle, a renowned substance abuse counselor who demystifies the psychology and physiology of addiction. We then meet ice cream savant Sam Caruso and baker Martha Gilreath, two New Orleanians who overcame addiction and a host of challenges to find a sweeter life for themselves. We're exploring addiction, recovery, and resilience on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hospitality workers are more likely to suffer from drug and alcohol abuse than employees in almost any other industry. Late hours and easy access to drugs make addiction and abuse practically an on-the-job hazard. To help us better understand the roots of this issue, we turn to an expert, substance abuse specialist Will Arendelle. When we spoke with Will in 2015, he broke down for us the psychology and physiology of addiction. Will, one of the things that I learned that really startled me is that apparently there is a heroin problem in restaurants in Louisiana, in the front of the house and in the back of the house in restaurants. What do you know about that? Well, actually, I worked in restaurants during my undergrad, and I actually saw this firsthand. I saw heroin use in the restaurant. Um, My first experience with it was walking down, and then we had a room where people changed clothes to get ready for work, and someone dropped a needle out of their bag. Plus, I've treated many, many people who work in the restaurant industry who were opiate drug users and heroin users. It's my understanding that heroin use through injection is not necessarily the most prevalent way that's being used today. Mm -hmm. And also, I always thought that it sort of was an opiate that like slowed you down into like some sort of slow motion, which certainly isn't something that works in the restaurant industry. So can you help me understand where my misunderstandings lie? Actually, it's a really excellent question. And there's a couple of things that go on there. One, is that when someone gets addicted to a drug, they don't have the same reaction to the drug that other people do. A lot of times it's an ab reaction or a paradoxical reaction. And so what happens is, is the opiates will give them energy 
until they use a certain amount of it. So you'll talk to opiate addicts who you know are pill users, and they'll say, I wanna, I'm going to oxy-clean the house. And what they mean is, I'm going to take 15 oxycontin, I'm going to get them to clean the house. The rest of us would be on the couch drooling for two days. Yeah. And so they have a different reaction. The other thing is that it's really a misnomer that an IV drug user will always shoot up in the arm. They can shoot up between their toes. They can shoot up in their neck. Even if someone is shooting up or using, you won't necessarily see it. What is interesting is that the statistics are 1 in 12 people sometimes. It's as high as 1 in 12 people report using illegal drugs. 1 in 50 report using Class A drugs, which would be heroin or cocaine. That's, you know, those statistics across the United States and across the Western world can be as high as that. So why is heroin so addictive and and why is it more dangerous than other drugs? I don't know that it's more dangerous than other drugs. What the person tends to get addicted to really has to do with what goes on in their brain. And there's certain deficiencies that can occur around a place called the nucleus accumbens. And depending on where that deficiency is, so in other words, if it's between the ventegmental area and the nucleus accumbens, then that connection, that person would like cocaine. Mm-hmm. If it's on the return trip back, because it makes a little circle, if it's on the return trip back, they might like opiates. If it's in another place, then they might like benzodiazepines such as Xanax. Prescription drugs are actually the most abused drugs. Mm. And where most people start is getting them out of the medicine cabinet. Right now, I've seen more and more and more high schoolers who are stealing mommy and daddy's oxycodone. And that's one of the reasons that the increase in opiates starts to happen. The other is that over the last 10 years, we've seen an increase in the availability of opiates coming into the United States. What is it about hospitality workers, people who work in restaurants and bars and that sort of thing? What makes them especially at risk for addiction? Well, I don't know that they're especially at risk to addiction as much as people who are prone to addiction are prone to go into the hospitality industry. Oh, I've talked with a lot of chefs and restaurateurs about this problem, and it would seem to me that one way to handle it might be through drug testing. Yet every time I ask someone about it, I get the exact same answer. They look at me and they say, if we had drug testing, we wouldn't have any employees. I, I think it, it's not the drug testing. It's what you do with it and the atmosphere you create around it. Let's go into, I know what's going to happen when we talk about intravenous drug use, right? And the public is going to flip out because this presents a danger to the public. And it actually doesn't. Um, I actually, in preparation for this interview, talked to two infectious disease doctors and did a little research into this. And if, if safe food handling is practice, that the HIV and hep C rates, which are actually pretty high in intravenous drug users, present no danger to the public. And then you also talked about the fact that a lot of the opiate users aren't using drugs that way. So what you do is you take that drug test and you start to intervene with that person and say, okay, this is not the kind of environment that I want in my restaurant. What can I do to help you? And there's a misnomer out there that a lot of people need to go to a 30-day or 60-day residential treatment center. And actually, the statistics are that intensive outpatient really is as effective a treatment as residential treatment. Someone can still keep their job when they're in outpatient, uh, intensive outpatient treatment. And even though it's, it's a lot of work, they still have enough hours left to work. And I've worked with people in intensive outpatient who were still working at their jobs. 
And the biggest thing is most people who are using don't really think there's help for them. And there, there really is. So I, I really recommend, in short, a process where you engage the person and start the dialogue, a very open kind of dialogue, very non-judgmental kind of dialogue, where it's based on their work performance. Then you start putting together where their work performance and their drugs come together. And it, once you start talking with them, it should be fairly easy to see. I think one of the things that's important to understand, too, when you're trying to get somebody to go into treatment is, what are the changes that occur in the brain? How do these guys who and girls who suffer from addiction think? Possessing the addiction, the addiction is just a symptom of what they're feeling inside. And most addicts will suffer from what I refer to as the profound and debilitating feeling of being alone. They feel separated from everybody. And it's, that's, a, that's a terrible way to live. And they probably felt separated since they were a child. Uh, because most addiction, unfortunately, is genetic. And we've got a lot of good evidence of that. They feel, they have a constant feeling of everybody's having fun and I'm not. They kind of feel alone in a crowded room. And the drug starts to solve that. The other thing they have going on is black and white thinking. It's either all or it's nothing. So once you say to them, hey, maybe you should go to treatment, they think, my life is over. And you've just got to sit and be with them and talk to them and work them through it. And it, sometimes it really doesn't take any real special therapeutic skill if you're a good listener and you do more listening than talking. The second is that I'm different. And when you spend a lot of time being alone, then what other people do doesn't apply to you. And so one of the ways you can look at addiction is almost like a different kind of learning disorder where they can't learn from their own behavior and they can't learn vicariously from other people's behavior. That's why they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And this brings us to another thing. is that They have an amazing ability to trust their own thinking. When we work with them, this is one of the things we, we start to target. When you don't have an addiction, you have an inherent distrust of some of the things you think and do. We all think crazy thoughts. What happens with addicts is they make a plan and they decide how that's going to work. They don't put any evidence into it, and then they just go to it. Then when that plan doesn't work, they'll probably try the same thing with a completely different rationale. So this is where you get the, uh, if I only use opiates in the morning and not at night, I'm good. Oh, if I only use them after my shift, I'm good. If I only use them, and maybe if I eat before, I'm good. And so when you're putting somebody in, in treatment, what you're trying to do is, I mean, you want them to stop using and you want them to be safe. But you really want to treat these underlying issues, especially the alone. That's why things like 12-step groups work is because that's a connection with other people that's important. When you're trying to deal with this problem, that important thing of connecting with somebody and having that connection with you as the employer is the important piece that's going to get them sober. That connection is the key. If they start to trust you, you can help them. And what I really like about this work is, you know, the, when people get better, it's really dramatic. And it's important to understand that people do get better. What is a hyperpalatable? Coming up next, Will Arundel explains that taste phenomenon and shares more of his insight about substance abuse and recovery. Louisiana Eats returns after a break. Make this land, land, in the world in which we live. 
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Turn now to our 2015 conversation with renowned substance abuse counselor Will Arendell as he shares a realistic look at addiction recovery. Another thing about addiction that I'm particularly curious about mm-hmm. is um, the way that addicts who have gotten clean will substitute caffeine, tobacco, sugar. So, what about these cravings? for things that are legal, and how do you view that? So there's a type of food out there called hyperpalatables. And hyperpalatables are things like Doritos and fat-sugar combinations. And what happens when we normally eat is we eat a food for a while, and we get a dopamine rush, the same kind of dopamine rush that an addict may get, except theirs is a little different. But we kind of experience that. And in Louisiana, we all experience this at the beginning of crawfish season. (laughs) Like there's the big crawfish boil and there we are and we're eating it up. And then, you know, by the 15th crawfish boil, you're like, that's cool. I'll have a couple. (laughs) And that's because the dopamine rush from the crawfish has fallen. And what that does for us is that makes us go on to get another food. And that keeps variation on our diet, which is really important. Hyperpalatables are foods where the dopamine level stays level the entire time. And actually eating these hyperpalatables has been shown to blunt the reward system, just like the use of drugs has. And that's what I call a low-brain hijacking, where the low-brain, the part that the addiction is in, which is more of our base emotions and automatic responses, is telling us to do something. And our frontal lobes are relegated to like an announcer at a football game. You're telling yourself to put down the ice cream, and you're not putting it down. And so these foods can sometimes be problematic with addicts and and caffeine and such. What I find is that they can stay sober while eating these foods, but it will tend to jump up. And I I see it in my my clients who, you know, they stop smoking and all of a sudden eat, 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 eat. And that's because the addiction has gone somewhere else. And a lot of times it'll... what we don't talk about in the United States a lot is that it'll also move to sexual behavior, mm. you know, because that's part of that continuum as well. 
And I don't think people necessarily need to abstain from the hyperpalatables, but they do have to be aware of it. We do know that when people with an addiction cut down on coffee and they cut down on cigarettes, their chances of long-term sobriety do increase. If a listener is addicted or knows someone who is, what should they do? Well, the first thing they should do is probably just start talking to that person. Um, Just start to open up. And I realize for some of our listeners who are maybe um, have a parent or married to these people, um, this can be a really hard discussion to start to have. But it's just to start to open up the discussion. Um, Understanding that when you open up the discussion, you're going to get some pullback. As I tell a lot of my married couples, don't ever expect to solve anything in one conversation. It takes a series of conversations. One of the things about addiction that's very fascinating is the way we encode memory. One kind of memory is called an unconsolidated memory, another is consolidated memory. A consolidated memory is something you remember from a couple weeks ago. It's lunch. You barely remember it happened. Another one's an unconsolidated memory. And those are memories where we remember a lot of detail from, and they have a logical timestamp, but no emotional timestamp, which means you know it was five years ago, feels like it was two months ago, feels like it was yesterday. And so when an addict, and these non-consolidated memories can be positive or negative, they can be you know, filled with joy, or they can be filled with hurt, but they're usually not mixed. And what I find with addicts is that when they... Go, let's say they go to the bar and they have a really good time. That'll be encoded as a non-consolidated positive memory. It has a lot of joy for them because that alcohol is fixing that ability for them to connect. And so they're connecting with others. And this is a unique experience for them or semi-unique experience for them. And so they encode that as a non-consolidated positive memory. And then there are the non-consolidated negative memories. And these usually won't be the same memory. So what happens is, is... They leave the bar, they get pulled over, and they end up in jail. For a non-addict, this is one memory. Start to finish, it's all negative. For the addict, it's probably going to be two. Mm. And that's why they really have a hard time remembering their consequences is because when they go to pull up that use of the drug, they pull up only the good parts. Mm. And they have to consciously go back and pull up the bad parts because part of their brain wants to get loaded, so they won't do that. And for the rest of us, it will pull up a singular memory that's all one, and we'll go, oh, no, that's, that's bad. And so you can see how you would need a coach to kind of help you deal with somebody who has an addiction. Um, patience and compassion are their key. I have a phrase I like. It's called compassionate boundaries. And that's that, you know, you have to hold the line on what you expect from this person, but you have to do it with love and with kindness. Um, getting angry with them often doesn't work. And, you know, these, I see these interventions, which sometimes work, and I, I don't have anything against them. But I often find that it's a series of discussions, a series of interactions that really causes the change. If you Think about what I said about a person who trusts their own thinking implicitly and trying to deal with that person despite what reality may be telling that person. You're going to need a coach to do that a lot of times. Um, If you don't have a coach, I really suggest doing it and trying the best you can. But try and learn from what their actions are teaching you. Addiction specialist Will Arendelle speaking to us in 2015.
in New Orleans, there's a line of small batch ice cream that's causing a stir with handmade, unconventional flavors. Sold by the quart, customers can get flavors with names like Peanut Butter Lover's Lane, Strawberry Briefcase, and Robert De Niro, each filled to the brim with premium toppings and mix-ins. Behind this operation is one man who has overcome a host of challenges to create a whole new future for himself. My name is Sam Caruso of Lousy Ice Cream. Of course, Sam's ice cream is anything but lousy. It's spelled L-A-O-Z-I and pronounced lousy, L-O-U-S-Y. The name actually came from Sam misquoting the Chinese philosopher Sun Tzu. It did. It came from the art of war. So Sun Tzu, the art of war, quote, victory comes from finding opportunities and problems. The quote spoke to him. And sure enough, after dealing with past struggles with addiction, a 2019 bike accident, and a pandemic, Sam has now found a sweet opportunity with lousy ice cream. Louisiana Eats joined Sam at his Mid-City workspace, located in the back of Blue Dot Donuts, to learn more. So I always say that um, I'm going to write a book one day because the story goes so far back from I remember being in the kitchen as a teenager. I always loved food and uh, I always said I want to open my own restaurant. Well, that was never able to be a reality for me. Uh, yeah, I come, uh, I come from a dark past, dark background. I was uh, I'm, I'm an addict, alcoholic. Uh, I was an IV heroin user for 17 years. Uh, I was homeless, in and out of jails, treatment centers my whole entire life. That's what my life was. Uh, Couldn't keep a job longer than six months. It was ups and downs and ups and downs. Do start doing okay and fall off. In 2017, I was actually homeless, had nowhere to go. I had been to detoxes. Uh, I had been to River Hooks Hospital twice. I remember in 2017, uh, July, I uh, got out and I just couldn't fight. It, it just my, it wouldn't shut off in my head. And I thought my destiny was to just go out and maybe somebody could benefit from uh, my my unfortunate situation. But um, I decided to go back, give it another shot, uh, and uh, went to detox. And then I went to treatment again. And uh, um, I got out. And that's when something had changed for me. Uh, uh, I came back home to New Orleans and uh, I just had a different mindset. Went to culinary school, I dropped out. Um, I realized it, well, it wasn't for me. Um, but what came with that was um, talking to people, being around people, cooking for people. So it was a dark past and uh, I came out of it some kind of way. So back in the restaurants, when you were working in the restaurants, you kind of got a fascination with the ice cream machine, didn't you? Right, so this is when I got sober. It was the second job I had in sobriety for me, and I was working uptown, waiting tables, and they made they did their own dessert menu. They had a little uh, ice cream machine. And it was funny, I would get to work early, and every day I'd get in there, I'm like, what are you doing today? What happens when you do this? What happens? And it was intriguing. I, I was interested in the whole process, and it wasn't like, oh, I want to do this, but uh, I decided I ate ice cream every day. Uh, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna get my own ice cream machine. So that's when I got a little $200 ice cream machine and uh, played around with it and put it down, didn't mess with it for a while. So that's, that's how that came about. It was intriguing to me. 
So, Sam, it's pretty amazing the way ice cream threw you a lifeline and kind of saved your life. It did. Um, in summer of 2019, I got hit by a car in Puerto Rico. I was almost killed in a car accident on a bicycle. And um, I was out of work. I was waiting tables before I went on vacation. And they told me that they would hold my job. But I wasn't healing. It was taking the doctors kind of misdiagnosed the breaks and stuff like that. So it took a good while to heal. And uh, it got to be October, late October 2019 when um, my job ultimately was like, hey, we can't hold your position anymore. And I remember I was really upset uh, when they told me that I liked working there. I had been there for a little while. It was kind of like family, me and the rest of the servers and, and the crew. And um, I got kind of depressed. I was watching TV in my bed for like two days straight. And uh, the light bulb went off. I was like, maybe, maybe I can learn how to make ice cream with the machine that I have in the kitchen and try to sell quarts for like $10 to like neighbors and friends just to get some cash coming in. And um, I couldn't get the quality where I wanted with that machine. And it, it wasn't necessarily with the flavors or anything, but I couldn't, the texture, texturally speaking, I couldn't get it. And so I did some research, some reading up on it behind the science of it. And I realized it was not gonna happen with that $200 machine. So I started looking at all the machines and the machine that I kind of set my eyes on, was, it was 1300 bucks. I wasn't working. Obviously, that idea goes on the back burner. So um, I had a friend over at Killer Poor Boys, Camille Boudreaux. He knew my foot was still messed up and I was in pain. He's like, hey, I'll let you come work the counter, pick your hours just so you can get some money. And I did that for two months and uh, very appreciative to him for that. Uh, but working for those two months, uh, I realized that um, it was just kind of soul crushing. Um, I went into work with my head down every day. So 2020, March comes, Camille calls me up 7.30 in the morning. Hey, we gotta lay everybody off at the shop. Just when the start of the pandemic, a couple hours later, my tax return, uh, a tax money came in and I owed the government $900 more when my tax return check was $2,200. Nine out of 22 is $1,300. I didn't know what was going on with the pandemic. So I was like, well, if I'm gonna be stuck in the house, then I'm just gonna buy this ice cream machine and try to have something to do, a hobby at that third. So I bought the $1,300 machine and uh, was amazed at the jump in quality uh, from a textual standpoint. So how did you get the word out? So I liked the quality and I felt confident with actually selling it to people. So I was, I was like, I'm gonna turn my Instagram into a business. I had less than 100 followers when I did this. And so I turned the Instagram into a business page and uh, people started calling me that I didn't know. And um, you know, neighbors started kind of spreading the word. I was selling to friends and neighbors and it just happened. It took off so fast. I remember in the beginning, you know, I always, it started with the quartz because the quart containers are Having family meal at the restaurant, I would take leftover food in the quart containers, clean them out, and I had a stacks of uh, quart containers, and that's how that started. Um, so, and I still sell in quart containers. Obviously, now I buy uh, quarts about a thousands, but also another reason I, I stuck with it: I hand draw all my lids. I experimented with stickers. I designed stickers and, and did that for a moment. And I realized it took just as much time to go peel the sticker and then go back and write the name. So I'm, I'm still working on some, some different techniques. Uh, but um, I hand do all lids. And if I did pints, then that would be twice as many lids to do, right? So, um, geez, I couldn't even imagine. 
what's your production level up to? Production level, yeah, I mean, I started, I remember probably try, probably making like 25 quarts a week. Now I do, I do over 200 quarts a week. I don't have the space where I'm at right now, very limited freezer space. So when I make stuff, usually I generally make it to sell. Uh, I kind of at this point learned what people like. And uh, although I want to go and do, you know, things uh, with peppers in them and do all kind of weird stuff, you know, I have a lot of ideas. I'm kind of limited right now. Once I get my own, if I get my own, when I get my own storefront, then I'll be able to play around more because I have the space and be able to keep it in the freezer. But right now, I make things to sell. I had a dream this morning, or a half dream, um, of uh, something with lemon, lemon and condensed milk that I'm doing right now. So um, the, the inspiration, it can come from anywhere. I can go eat a pizza and be like, hmm, uh, basil custard with uh, candy sun-dried tomatoes and uh, mascarpone, you know. To, it doesn't, uh, so yeah, but, and I, I want to do that and do things like that, but I just need my own storefront first. Through uh, necessity or perhaps some design, you've added sort of this uh, underground element to lousy ice cream. Somebody called me, uh, a lady called me one time to, she does uh, like uh, teaches some kind of business thing and she was asking me about it. I said, if you want a model to show students of how not to do something, then I'm your guy. Uh, you can't ask me what I'm making because I don't even know yet half the time. I just know the stuff that I'm doing. I used to do the thing where I would take pre-orders. It can't work anymore. Um, it's just too many people and uh, I can't keep up with it. So first come, first serve. Just just stay, keep your eyes peeled on my Instagram and Facebook page. So what's it like when you open the door, Sam? I mean, is there a line? What happens? Oftentimes, especially the first day, there is a line. Uh, sometimes I'll be coming in and it says a line. Like, I'll start going frantic. <laughs> it's getting crazy. But uh, it's good, man. One of the favorite parts about doing this is I worked front of the house most of my whole life. I liked, I like interacting and talking about ice cream and food with people. It's fun to talk. I have a rapport with most of the um, customers that come. I like talking to them. I like meeting new people. Uh, I love talking about ice cream, about what's going on, uh, listening to ideas. It's perfect for me because, you know, I always, it, it captures everything that I saw in what I would be doing with food. It was like, I get to cook and I get to share. I get to listen to music all day and I get to meet all kinds of new people. And uh, nobody's ever upset when they're buying ice cream. <laughs> There's no upset customers. I've never had one yet. Well, I'm so glad that I was able to find you at this particular juncture of your career because I can hardly wait to see where lousy ice cream is going from here. I could hardly wait to see where it's going myself. I mean, this thing is growing and it's growing really fast. And uh, like I said, I'm just following it. And wherever it takes me, uh, I'm just as excited to see. And I wake up every day excited, like, you know, what's, what am I doing today? Uh, I love my job. <laughs> Sam Caruso of Lousy Ice Cream speaking to us in his workspace in the back of Blue Dot Donuts in Mid-City, New Orleans. To learn how to get your own quart of Sam's handcrafted ice cream, visit him on Facebook and his Instagram page using the handle 
at lousy.ice.cream. What's a simple, healthy way to de-stress? Stay tuned, and we'll share some age-old insights with you when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry. Now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is a simple, healthy way to de-stress? One answer lies in something so simple. Water. Hydrotherapy, or the water cure, is something the Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans all practiced. Beginning in the 19th century, hydrotherapy was used to treat mental illness. Before World War II, it was utilized as a treatment for alcoholism, something AA founder Bill Wilson experienced personally. Spa tourism flourished in the 19th century with hydrotherapy as key. That's when those artesian waters of St. Tammany Parish first attracted tourists to the North Shore. Water works both on and in your body. A hydrated brain is a functional brain. Drinking water cushions your brain, spinal cord, and other sensitive tissues and lubricates your joints, too. So do your best to consume the recommended eight, eight-ounce glasses of water a day. And when that day has been just too much for you, soak in a long, hot bath and see how that makes things all better. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My name is Martha Gilreath, and my business is Nolita. 
I discovered New Orleans baker Martha Gilreath between the pages of Matt Haynes' 2021 book, The Big Book of King Cake. For Martha, Nolita, her pop-up bakery, and its king cake meant so much more than just a seasonal treat. It represented a fresh start. In 2022, Martha met our previous guest, Sam Caruso, in the Rooms of Recovery. That year, Sam invited her to sell king cakes from his mid-city lousy ice cream location. Later that year, Martha was named executive chef at the Chicory House in New Orleans Garden District. In April of this year, Martha made the big time when her inspiring story was featured on the Today Show. Now, Martha's looking forward to a brief summer sabbatical while she figures out the next steps for her Nolita baking biz. No matter what happens next, Martha is committed to sharing her belief that anyone can recover. Her joy and hope is simply contagious. Here's Martha from our original 2021 interview. So my dad is from the West Bank and my mom is from Baton Rouge and I grew up on the North Shore for a while. Um, And somewhere along the way in uh, my early 20s, I got very, very lost and was in active addiction, drug addiction for the better part of 16 years. Uh, And I came back home to New Orleans in 2015 and ended up homeless, um, living under the Claiborne Bridge uh, by Lee Circle. And I continued that way of life uh, through the winters and summers, and it was miserable. And it occurred to me that I was not going to die from this disease. I was going to probably wake up every day for the next 30 years and live like this and that was something I couldn't do anymore. Uh, I went to Charleston and I got treatment. And when I was about five months sober, I'd always loved to cook. I grew up in the kitchen with my mom cooking for all six kids and, you know, just good old Creole food. And I loved, I loved cooking um, at the rehab facility I was in. And I got to see what that did for people, that little moment of escapism, you know, when they're, when they're in these really dark places and there's not a lot of hope. Um, for some reason, everybody appreciates a treat. And so I decided I want to do this, but I want to be the best at it. <laughs> so I started looking up culinary schools and I discovered Noki, which they had opened in New Orleans. And it took a lot of pausing and a lot of seeking direction to decide to move back to New Orleans. And, uh, pursue that you know I was very newly sober and full of a lot of fear but I applied and I got a scholarship well you entered the pastry program there why were you drawn to pastry Martha I think that pastry there's something so magical about the science behind it it's you know you see these wonderful fantastic fabulous desserts and you don't realize how meticulous in nature they really are and I had started developing those practices in my life uh patience following direction rules and um (laughs) and it challenged me you know I I could stay on the culinary side of things and taste things and figure it out or I could apply this discipline that I never had 
And so it was challenging. You had a particular cake moment before you came back to New Orleans. I did. I um, was in a treatment center, and there was a new resident. He was turning 21 in treatment, which I imagine was very not fun for him. And, you know, it's the small things, the small ways we try to celebrate each other. And I found out that he loved cheesecake. And so I made a cheesecake, and I'll never forget, I walked outside to smoke a cigarette, um, and it was dark, and the windows to the dining room were illuminated and I looked in there and he was sitting with a few of his friends and it was the first time I'd seen him smile oh and in that moment it just clicked for me this is this is what I want to do is to make people smile when did the irony of the school's location and your homeless experience when did that hit you it, it was actually not during orientation because I had parked somewhere else, but they gave us suggestions for parking during the school year. And one of them was right under the Crescent City Connection. And, you know, it's 6 o'clock in the morning and I'm trying to park and I pull up. And it's the little lot that they had suggested was the exact location where I had slept for so long. And on the other side of where I parked, there was still a row of tents there. And it was extremely overwhelming and gratifying. And it continued to be a healing process throughout me going to school because every morning I would park there for, and for about 10 seconds, there's a choice every morning. So it was, but I also think that that's the universe bringing things full circle for me. I understand that when it came time to graduate, you were the class valedictorian? It was. I didn't even know they had valedictorians <laughs> over there. Tell me about that experience. Um, it was surreal. It was surreal because I can't tell you the last time I finished something in my life that I had any follow through, whether it was being a part of my family or just going to work. Um, I'd never, I hadn't seen anything through in 16 years, 17 years. And the very first week of school, I remember sitting in that pastry lab and thinking, I cannot do this. I was so uncomfortable and so terrified of failing again. And so I just showed up every day. I showed up and I listened and I asked for help and I helped people that needed help. And then I got asked to step outside of class one day and Chef Miller told me to write a speech and I, I paused and I said, okay, I think I know where this is going, but I'm not sure. So please tell me. Um, and it was a great experience because at that graduation, I was able to share what food is to me, which might be different than it is to some people. And so it was very raw, but uh, very gratifying. And, and what is food to you, Martha? Food to me at its base level is survival. It is, you know, it's a part, it's a necessity as much as water and warmth. And to know that on a very real level, I, I was able to be placed in an, a place of appreciation where somewhere along my journey at Nogi, food transitioned from being survival to being of service. And, and I think that's what Nogi taught me is when you can provide food in service of an event or a memory or for a season, like Mardi Gras, 
it becomes something completely different and it becomes a celebration. And so it kind of hand in hand, that transition went through what I was going through with my own life. I no longer was eating to survive. I was eating to celebrate. When did you decide to pursue King Cake as a business model? And tell me the story about the cake and how it came to be. Well, uh, before Christmas break, uh, my wonderful mentor and chef at Noki, Zach Miller, had, you know, mentioned if any of you ever wanted to make king cakes on the side, you know, just he's always encouraging us to try new things. So I was in Charleston for Christmas and about five days before carnival season started, I said, why, why not? Like, I'm, I think I've got an idea. And so I contacted one of my fellow students, London LaHoste, and uh, I said, hey, you want to make king cakes? And she said, sure. So we sat down at a picnic table and I draw up an LLC and, and we just figure, out, figure it out along the way. And what was very neat is we said, we'll deliver. Yeah. Because no one wanted to leave their houses. And so... And we had no idea what we are doing, um, so it was a trip. Tell me about uh, making the decision to keep that Nolita going, and, and, and what's the future? Well, um, you know, my, my partner in the beginning, she had she moved to Boston, is doing fantastic up there. Um, and I wasn't sure. I, you know, I thought I wanted to pursue this, and I became a pastry chef at a restaurant, and I was actually having coffee with my mentor one day, and he said, I envy your lack of social filter. Um, because the desserts, the pastries that I want to make, um, I made one for Nalfi last year and won a gold medal. And I just... I, what was it? It, <laughs> it was a play, ironically, on a Ramos Gin Fizz. And it had gold pop rocks and juniper meringue and gin compressed peaches which I couldn't try because of the gin um but I I have this need to create these wild weird and witchy things that don't make any sense until you try them and I I don't want to spend the next 10 years making them for somebody else and so I decided after I'd interviewed with Matt Haynes for the big book of king cake and once I saw the book I said, this is what I'm going to do. And I called my parents and said, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do every bit of it. I'm, you know, I'm all in all the cards. At this point in my life, I have truly lost everything before. And so whatever I'm risking right now is is not in comparison that scary. Um, it is still terrifying, you know, uh, but it's exciting and I feel like I could chase this thing for the next 25 years and still be excited about it. Martha Gilreath of New Orleans pop-up bakery, Nolita. To keep track of what Martha's up to, follow her on Instagram at Nolita underscore Nola Love. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. 
Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Reitz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 